Today's message is called Falcha Ischach. Falcha Ischach. Come on, say it with me. Falcha Ischach. Really get this through. Ischach. Okay. So I have a really good friend that pastors a great church in the city of Cork uh, in the province of Monster. And whenever I go there and I preach in his church, he doesn't just say Falcha or Kate Mila Falcha or Ta Falcha Road or Falcha Reef. He says, You're Falcha Ischach, which means welcome in. Like it isn't just a welcome, it's a, a welcome in. And I, I always just find it so interesting that it's almost like welcome's not enough in their church in Cork. They want to welcome you in. They want to bring you in and do life with you. And I want to say to you, if this is your first time, you're false, you're shocked, you're welcome in. But I also want to tee up in, this, in this, this title the kind of point or purpose or direction of today's message. It'll all make sense as we close it off in the end. But let me start off with a question. And the question is this, have you ever not been recognized? Have you ever had that awkward moment where you bump into someone, you know you know them, and you know they should know you, but they don't? Or maybe it's, it's vice versa. Maybe you bump into someone, and you can tell they know you, and they can tell by how they're acting that they expect you to know them, but truth be told, you don't. Now, before I was a Christ follower, this was always an awkward thing because what do you call someone that clearly knows you, but you don't know them? And then when I became a Jesus follower, I thought that one of the best, one of the benefits, one of the best benefits of being in a Christian community is that whenever you see someone you don't know, you simply go, hey, brother. Hey, what up, sister? Whatever your name is. How long has it been? Two weeks. Oh, wow. Two weeks. Oftentimes what happens to me, to my embarrassment, because I'm really, I'm very, ask anyone who knows me, I'm really passionate on remembering people's names, especially pronouncing them properly. I think if your mother gave you a name, the world owes it to her to say it properly. It's a pet peeve of mine. So, um, so when someone comes to me and says, hey, how are you doing, Pastor Jay? How's life? How's Lud? How's the kids? I'm thinking, man, this person knows a lot about me. I probably should know something about them, but I don't. A couple of years ago it happened where I bumped into someone in Tesco and we're chatting away and, I, and I, I just can't help it. I just can't help the fact that I, this person seems to know me, but I don't remember them. And so eventually I go, I'm so sorry, but like, how do I know you? And he's like, I've been coming to my house for 10 years. You did our wedding ceremony. Oh, <laughs> look at the time. Let's, uh, let's be going, right? I mean, awkward. A funny one happened here, not so, only a few weeks ago, happened here in our church where I was chatting to some lady and we're talking about, I, I didn't recognize her, didn't know her, so we're chatting away. And I'm like, is this your first time? She said, no, I came here for a while, like three or four years ago. I'm like, oh, wow, so you were here before? Yeah, I came for like, I don't know, three or four months, but it was three or four years ago. I said, oh, wow. She goes, yeah, but there was a different pastor here. He had short hair, he was clean shaven, and about half your size. And of course, as she's talking, it's dawning on me, she's talking about me. And so I'm having this, this wrestling match of mine going, do I just keep my mouth shut and just not say anything or do, or do I tell her the truth and go, I'm so sorry, but you know, it's a me. <laughs> I'm the same person. COVID has not been gentle to me, okay? I'm saying some of you have gotten through COVID. I'm still going through COVID. COVID is a perpetual thing in my life. But there's something about recognition. There's something about the value attached to recognition. 
that when we, when, we, when we know someone, we should know someone, it's important that we know someone. It's important that we know those that we care about's names. It's important that we're involved. Why? Because by recognizing something, it infers value. Well, I didn't recognize, I don't know how, about you or what, your first driving story, but I didn't recognize the value of having a good or safe car when I first started driving. I was just so, so happy to have a car of any kind. It didn't bother me what car it was. In fact, my first car was literally a Fiat Seicento. And I'll have you know, it wasn't the 0.9X version. It was the 1.1 petrol SX Sports Edition, everybody. It could do a whopping 110 kilometers after half an hour downhill. And when I got this car, it had no handbrake. It had no uh, speedometer. Uh, the power steering is a bit funny. And it had no fourth gear. So you kind of just work your way with fourth gear. And true story, uh, the day I got my license, I got past my test, I phoned up the insurance company. I was coming back from Dublin on the train. And I got insured, picked the car, drove to Lud's uh, workplace. She was seven months pregnant with our firstborn, Joshua. And the first time I ever drove my car was driving from one side of Ireland to the other. I took my wife, my seven-month-old baby inside of her, all the way across to the west coast of Ireland. Now... Like I said, I had no speedometer. And when you first start driving, things like rules in the road matter to you. The longer you drive, depending on your personality, rules can be interpreted as suggestions. And I'll let you decide which side line that you're on. So we're driving along and it's like, what are you going to do? Like, how, do you, how are you going to know if you're breaking the speed? And I said, oh, easy. If I drive slow enough that everyone is always overtaking me, I'm certain that I can't be breaking the speed limit. So what should have been like a three-hour journey took like six hours. It took a long time. And I was very happy in my field until fast forward the clock, about two more months, when that baby that is inside my wife, who's now born, now a 16-year-old young man here today, uh, we had to go to hospital. So this same Fiat Cento, my one was, was red, wine red, took us down to the hospital, Kenny, Kenny Hospital, because uh, I used to live in Carlo, and it came time for her to give birth to our son. And so we're in the hospital and we're going through this process of waiting and we're walking up and down and there's the bouncy ball and there's the breathing and there's walking up and down and the bouncy ball and on and on and on and on. And eventually day became night and as it became at night time, the uh, nurses told me that I could not stay in the ward and I couldn't even stay in the hospital. They had a policy at the time. I had to leave the hospital grounds. So I'm like, what am I going to do? It's my first baby. It's my wife. What's going to happen? Should I get a hotel? Should I just stand at the front door? Should I go home? We lived half an hour away. What should I do? And then, of course, it dawned on me that out in the car park, I had a Fiat Seicento. So why not sleep in the back of my Fiat Seicento? And again, I'll admit, I'm not the tallest person in the world, but I'm not the shortest person either. If you were to take a conventional car, even by today's standards, and try lie down the back of it, unless you're five foot nothing, you're not going to have a very comfortable experience. When it comes to a Fiat Seicento, you'd have to be a garden gnome, and still the car would be too small. This is a picture of the inside of the back seat of a Fiat Seicento. It fit one person. I notice three seatbelts do not be fooled by the amount of seatbelts. It fit one person. And so, on that faithful night that my son was born, I slept in a field position, just like he was, in the back of a Fiat Seicento. And 
night, that night became day. My son was born. That was great. After a few days, I got to bring him home in my feet, gentle. And then very quickly it dawned on me as I was sitting here, and this car was so small, my wife was here, and my baby was here, and it was like even a tin opener could open this sucker up. That maybe it's time, because of the value of what I have, to change the vehicle that carries us. It was good enough for me, but now that someone greater is here, I need to do something to change my car. And so I did. I upgraded, ladies and gentlemen, from a Fiat Seicento to a 1.2 liter Fiat Punto. And wasn't I the man? Wasn't I the boy? Wasn't I the lad driving around Carlo in my 1999 Wine Red? I was thinking Wine Red, and what it is, the connection. Keeps following me around. Fiat Punto. You see, when we think about Christmas, this is what Christmas is all about. Not about Fiat Seicentos or Puntos, but about recognition. The reason why we celebrate, the reason why we give our gifts, the reason why we take time, the reason why we write letters, the reason why we travel, the reason why we invest is because we want to recognize those who are nearest and dearest to us. In Ireland, we celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day. We have a turkey. We have ham. We have mashed potatoes. We have roast potatoes. If you're posh, you have potato gratin. You may even have chips. In my house, true story, I have a brother who his entire life only ever eats chicken nuggets and chips for Christmas. Don't judge us out loud. I know you have weird family members too. And then we'd have, I don't know, cabbage and Brussels sprouts, and that was it. And then we'd have dessert and then we'd do gifts. Well, when I married a Brazilian, they do things differently. Because Brazilians celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. And they don't just have turkey. They have turkey. They have ham. They have cow. They have goat. They have lamb. Anything with four legs that walk the earth is reasonable means for eating. And very unvegetarian. If you're, if you're a vegetarian, never go to anything Brazilian. You will be shocked. It's horrific. Okay? So... And my first 10 years in this culture of, of Brazilian Irish meant that on, on, on Christmas Eve, we would sit down. And again, it wasn't like dinners at 6 p.m. You'd relax. It was like we would sit down to eat at midnight, everybody. And again, you married to a South American family. Food isn't like eat for half an hour and leave the table. It's like a two to three hour experience. And it's all good. It's banter. It's chatting. It's telling stories. It's laughing. Of course, everyone's talking at the same time. Very, very loudly. The key is to be as loud as you can. That's the key to be heard in every same family. And then we'd get done around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And then came time for gifts. Which is off another hour or so. And before you know it, you're crawling to the bed at like 5, 6 a.m. Thinking, I wish I was just Brazilian. But because I'm Irish, now come the kids at 7 a.m. going, Daddy, 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 come on. Let's get up and open our presents. So like zombies resurrected from the grave in a Michael Jackson-style thriller episode, down the stairs we go, as many cups of coffee as we can, smile, photos, kids, presents, die for an hour, only to realize that in just a few short hours, we're going to do Christmas all over again. More turkey, more ham, more potatoes. So we all do that because it's the Irish thing. We crash on the couch, spend the rest of the evening watching all those classic Christmas movies like Die Hard and Gremlins and Home Alone and Ghostbusters, the original, of course. And then the next day, the 27th, 26th in our house, then all the Irish family gather, and once again, we have Christmas dinner. 
And you're thinking, my goodness, like you should be 400 pounds. It's amazing these jeans do to my waist, everybody. I tell you, but the only good thing about all that turkey and all that eating is that the, the leftover turkey, we could feed a small country after Christmas. The leftover turkey is the gift that keeps on giving. In fact, I still am eating turkey sandwiches from 10 years ago in 2023. So if you ever want a good old-fashioned turkey sandwich, come to my house. But the reason why we go to all this effort of food and dressing up and cards and the reason why employers recognize staff members and we write you know, nice, nice you know, uh, thank you letters, we give gift cards or vouchers or bonuses, the reason why we spend time and travel as far is because we want to recognize the value that people have in our life. Why? Because simply put, we don't make room for that which we don't recognize as being important. See, for me... My life in the Fiat Cento was grand. It was all good. But as soon as my son was born, it wasn't good enough. I recognized something of greater value. I needed to change my context to reflect that. The reason why we sacrifice such a Christmas is because we want to communicate to each other that we recognize and, and want to express our love, care, and value for one another. That's good, but the problem that we come across Christmas all the time is, but what, what, where do we put Jesus like when Jesus is like a porcelain doll in like a little plastic nativity scene, it's cute, it's fitting, and it's dismissive. That's where Jesus belongs. But when people start talking about Jesus as a living person who literally came into the world to seek and save the lost, broken, hurting, to give them grace and redemption, reconciliation, hope and purpose, then it becomes a bit awkward. What do we do with Jesus? And so the question I'm asking is, is how should we recognize Jesus at Christmas? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and verse 1, there's this wonderful account. It's a, a classical account of Jesus' birth. In fact, it's one you've probably heard many times in, in, in nativity plays, watched as a kid, starred as a kid, uh, maybe seen online or seen, uh, you know, uh, epitomized in a movie. It's iconic, but one of the reasons why I love it is because the author Luke, who wrote Luke's gospel, never actually met Jesus. He wasn't a follower of Jesus in the sense that he was there uh, with the first disciples. We're told that Luke was a doctor, and he was a historian, and he was basically hired by a very wealthy benefactor in Rome to travel to the Holy Land to interview eyewitnesses, to cross-reference, and to put together a historical account of Jesus' life, to make sense of how are all these people in Rome calling themselves Jesus followers, literally dying in Colosseums because they will not renounce their faith in a resurrected Christ. Like, what, where did this come from? And so Luke was tasked with writing accounts. So he wrote two volumes. Part one is the Gospel of Luke, and part two we know as the book of Acts. They're both written by Luke. And in chapter two and verse one, as only a historian can, Luke starts off his account of Jesus' birth by time stamping. Okay, this is very important. He says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This, we're told, was the first census that took place while Quirinus was the governor of Syria. More than just name dropping uh, VIPs, what Luke is actually doing is he's trying to uh, kind of pinpoint, historically speaking, where this 
this event took place. Caesar Augustus, arguably the greatest Caesar of all the Caesars. He is the nephew of Julius Caesar. He is the one in, under whose reign most of what we know as Rome and, and, and Roman lifestyle was advanced. We're told that he issued a decree that a census should be taken. Now, the purpose of a census, especially in those days, wasn't for poor old Caesar Augustus to figure out how many loyal and royal subjects he had in his empire. No, the purpose of a census was to figure out how much money are we losing in tax. Uh, governments, the names of governments may change, but their motives are always the same. We want to tax you. And so he wanted to figure out how much money could I be getting, how much money should I be getting, and how much money is going missing. So by doing a census, it gave him a perspective of the entire world that he was emperor of. And to add some more value, uh, Luke not only mentions the big CA, but also references a local governor in the region that was then called Syria, which, which encapsulated what we would call the Middle East. So Kyrenes was the first kind of... Kierner was the governor, sorry, of the Middle East, and this was the first census took place under his reign, which means even today, historians can go, go back and they can actually pinpoint this moment and validate this account, historically speaking, which if you're like me, I'm a skeptic. I don't, I don't like to believe things because someone says believe. I like to understand. and I really appreciate that God gave us this account. In verse 3, the story continues. It says, And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So what's happening here is historians tell us that the way the census worked in the Roman world was people would have to go back to the place where they owned property and register themselves and their assets there with the Roman Empire. So even though... Joseph and Mary were living in a town called Nazareth, which is actually north of Jerusalem, near Galilee. We're told they had to travel down, well, up it says. And the reason why it says up, even though if you, if you have a map right now of Israel, <clears throat> Nazareth's here and Bethlehem's here. But the reason why it says he traveled up from town Nazareth is because he had to go up the mountain Jerusalem and over to Bethlehem. So he was traveling down from Nazareth where he lived to Bethlehem. Uh, in order to fulfill his obligations to register himself. And what's so interesting is we're also told that he, Joseph uh, basically is a, is a descendant. He's part of the family tree of the, of the greatest king in Israelite history, King David. And it continues in verse 5. He went there, we're told, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Of course, one of the most famous parts of the Christmas story is, is this, this fact that Joseph and Mary, to put the, the word pledge to be married in vernacular English, means they were engaged. So they were engaged in the process of getting ready to be married when all of a sudden God shows up in Mary's life and says, Mary, I'm going to do something incredible in you and through you that will change the world. That is, you're going to have a son. His name will be Jesus and he will be born Savior of the world. Only problem is, it, this son you're going to have won't be Joseph's son. It will be a miracle that I will do in and through you. So of course, 
when Joseph finds out that his wife, his fiancée, forgive me, Mary, a wife-to-be, is pregnant, immediately he decides in his heart the best thing to do is to break off the engagement, which any of us would do, until, of course, an angel visits him and tells him this is from God, that he shouldn't do it, and that there is a purpose in all this. So Joseph I don't know how he did it. I mean, Joseph doesn't get enough credit. But basically, he obeyed God, trusted God, and kept Mary, and basically brought her to be registered with him. And then after Jesus' birth, they were married. Incredible. But the interesting thing is, is while they were en route, while they were doing business, while they were on this business trip, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, I don't know, don't know about you, if you've ever had kids, or how many kids you've ever had in our marriage, we're blessed and fortunate to have four, four boys. And uh, when, whenever you have your first child, everything is so stressful. Everything, like every, you're reading books about how to parent. You're, you're, you're reading reviews on different parent, baby monitors, frequencies, like all the like, worst case scenarios. You basically, you save proof the house so much, your own parents can't get around. You know what I'm saying? They can't open cabinets. They can't open the fridge. It's like everything is so high pressure, so high. What stress? Why? Because your baby's about to come. And you have the second baby. You're like, well, it's been a while, but we've been here before. So let's just try our best. And then by the time you have three, it's like, man, we're, this is getting really easy. By the time you have the fourth baby, it's like, where did you come from? Oh, you were born? Oh, crap. Welcome to the family. It's like, it's just so natural. It's so easy. In fact, true story, on the night that we were uh, getting ready to, to welcome our newest son, Jonathan, to the world, Lud woke up around 3 o'clock in the morning and said, I think my waters are breaking. I said, okay, what do you want to do? Because, you know, in, in every movie you've ever seen or maybe in your own life, it's like, run to the hospital. This is baby number four, y'all. So, so she's like, well, I think I'll wait a while. I said, okay, well, I'm going to go back to sleep, and if it gets worse, you call me. Because the day before, I knew that the most important time for me as the father of the child was in the moment of labor where I can hold her hand and say sorry a thousand times for being a partaker in this cruelty. Um, but uh, So I just turned over, and I rolled. I fell asleep. Well, as I was telling people this story later on, they are like, are you insane like your wife's waters are breaking. How did you go back asleep? I'm like, have you been there for the birth of three children? Have you been in the labor? Have you walked up and down and up and down and bouncy ball, bouncy ball? You don't even know what happens, man, in that room. I need, my, I need to bring my A game. I need to bring my best energy to when that moment comes. So in that, so in that moment, I thought the best thing I can do right now for my wife and for my son is get a good night's rest. Which I did. And later on that morning, we went to hospital very calmly. And I sat there and read the Irish Times. And then the midwife said, it's time. I went, oh, it's time. Folded my paper, got up, stood at my wife's side. And one hour later, boom, Jonathan was born. The point is, when the time comes, the time comes. And whether it's, whether it's ideal or not, you can't stop the time coming. And for Mary and Joseph, this time was not that's going to happen at home with all the support mechanisms of Nazareth. This is going to happen in Bethlehem. Now, part of this was because we're told in the Old Testament it was prophesied that the Messiah, that is the Son of God and Savior of the world, would be born in Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem means bread of heaven or house of bread. And so it was a symbolic reference to the fact that God was providing spiritual nourishment to the world through the sending of His Son in a town called Bethlehem. And so we're told in verse 7, 
and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now again, the first half of this verse makes sense. So baby's born, healthy, their firstborn, cool, a son, even better. And the tradition of wrapping a baby, almost like in modern day swaddling cloths, was, was driven by the idea, scientifically speaking, medically speaking, that they believed that if a baby was, was, was straight and they wrapped them up, that their, their muscles and their bones would grow faster. So that was just custom until the baby could move around. It's the second half of the verse that's so interesting. And again, it's, it's so powerful, it's so shocking, it's so disturbing, it's so like OMG, but we miss it. Why? Because we've heard this story so much we've become desensitized to its impact. Because when it says, and placed him in a manger, any first century reader, second century reader, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, for most of time, when people heard this, this next line, their reaction would have been, oh, what? I don't believe it. No way, Jose, if you're here, Jose. Like, no way. There's just no way that that would happen. Of course, we're all going, well, what's the big deal? What's the problem with a manger? We've all seen those cute plastic, porcelain, perfectly tidy, organized, neat nativity scenes. What's so bad? What's so wrong? What's so shocking about a manger? And again, I think it's so interesting that when you see most nativity sets in the world, you got Joseph and Mary, both looking very dapper. Joseph's a bit too, ma- too feminine for my liking, just saying it loud. Um, and then this cute little baby Jesus, who is not crying. Kid just born, and he's like, Joy to the world. You know, peace, peace on earth to Google. It's like, what the heck? And then all of a sudden you have, this, you have these three wise men, which again, the Bible doesn't say there was three, and we're told those wise men actually came years later. And you have like these other folk, maybe the shepherds, and you have like the most immaculately well-manicured sheep you've ever seen in your life, probably even flosses. You have this unusually uh, calm and very polite smiling cow. Sometimes you got a donkey, and one or two other animals. And it's like, what a cute little nativity scene. Like, what's so wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that is an artist, that is like poetic license taken to the nines when it comes to what a manger was. Here's a better word for manger. Food trough. You think, well, why is that a better word for manger? Because that's what a manger is. It's a food trough for which animals would eat or drink. Just a trough. Feeding trough. And literally we're told because they got to the, the inn and there was no room in the inn that they were left out basically in the shed. I don't know about you, but one of the shows I've enjoyed watching this year is a show on Amazon Prime called Clarkson's Farm. Has ever, anyone ever watched Clarkson's Farm? It's very good. I, you should not watch it. And one of the things I noticed in watching this season was hit, Jeremy Clarkson had this issue where like, these, uh, what are they called? Badgers, thank you. We're kind of coming up onto these food trots and climbing up on them and drinking from them. But as they were drinking from the food trots, they were passing on their disease through the water so the other animals would come, drink the same water and get sick and die. And so there's a whole episode on how do we solve this badger problem. Again, you're looking at this, looking at this TV show and looking at these nasty mangy badgers with all their diseases, getting disease in the water and these you know, animals are all dirty doing this thing. And thinking, who in their right mind would put a baby in that? 
Like, if by today's standards, if, if on Jeremy Clarkson's farm, he took one of his grandkids and wrapped them in cloths and put them in a mangy, badger-infested, diseased food trough, we would be shocked. We would be disgusted. We would be outraged. And that's just any baby. Because babies are valuable. What about the Son of God and Savior of the world? I think it's the greatest irony in history that the Son of God was born, not just a man, but a man in a manger. It's well manicured cheap right there. Incredible. Whoever their vet is, I need to get them to see my dog. That sheep looks, looks like it's in better condition than my dog is in. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. And the problem with, with classic nativity scenes is, is like a lot of how we view religion. It's so perfect and so ornate and so clean and so wonderful and so peaceful and so happy. Even the shepherd boy, look, he's so happy. We look at these nativity scenes, wow, it's wonderful, but I could never fit in that scene. I don't belong there. I'm not well manicured. I'm just not that perfect. I'm just not that happy. Like, if, if, if God knew the real mess that is my life, I will be out of scene, out the door, and across the road. But of course, all that's built on an illusion because a real-life first-century manger was mangy. It was a, it was a horrible, animal-filled, feces-infested, food trot, maybe not badgers, but who knows what other diseases were around in time, thing. And God allowed his son and savior of the world to be born in a manger. Why? There's two reasons. Then we're going to pray. The first is practical, and the second is phenomenal in terms of a spiritual sense. Back to verse 7. The reason why was because there was no room in the inn. There was no guest room available. There was no room. So practically speaking, this is just a, a hospitality issue. They went to a local B&B, knocked on the door, but the guy said, I'm sorry, all our rooms are full. There's no room. Which again, I don't hold it against the guy, but what he failed to recognize in that moment, getting back to recognition, is that before him, about to be born somewhere in the vicinity of his property, wasn't just an iconic religious figure, but arguably the most important person in all of human history. Like, even if the innkeeper was an ardent, secularized atheist, which would be very uncommon in the time, and had no interest in things of God or the plans or purpose of God, still before him is the most important person in human history. Like, think about it. The, the, the most famous actors in our day and age, most famous musicians, most famous songs, most iconic artists, all of them will be forgotten a hundred years from now. Because you go, what? No way. Name one artist beyond Beethoven or Bach from over 100 years ago. We don't have them. We don't know their songs. They're gone. They're lost. And the truth is, the world just keeps moving on and on and on. And even the most famous, most iconic names in our moment right now are lost and forgotten. One name will remain. One story will still be told. One person we celebrate. And that is the person, Jesus Christ. Long before we were born, his name was been told. And long after dead, his story was told. He is the most important person in all of human history. Yet to the poor innkeeper, there was no room. I mean, if he hadn't recognized who it was that was asking him for space, he would have kicked everybody out of the house. 
He would have said, I'm sorry, time's up, out you go. What do you have paid for a room? I don't care. Someone greater, someone of much greater value, someone much more important than you has come. Therefore, I need to make room. So the first reason, practically, why there's no room was because there was no room. But the second reason is far more important and more spiritual. That is this. Jesus wasn't just a man. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. And it was very important, it was very strategic how God would introduce his son to the world. Isn't it so interesting how with our own physical babies we're, 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 we're so um, careful how we introduce them. How we want the world to see them or how we do wedding ceremonies. And now I introduce you, Mr. and Mrs. Like introductions are very important in life. And the father of heaven wanted to introduce his son to the world. He could have, he could have caused Jesus to be born in any palace. In any castle, in any wonderful place, but he didn't. I mean, Jesus could have been born of the highest of highest when it comes to royalty, but he wasn't. He was born in a mangy manger in a forgotten podunk town called Bethlehem. Why? Because in Jesus' coming, God wanted to communicate to us the meaning and purpose of his coming. He wasn't coming to be fed with a silver spoon and to be given the best of the best, to only reach the best of the best. He was coming as the lowest of lows into a dirty, dark, forgotten, left out, pushed aside, shed of a place to tell us, no matter who we are, what we've done, what we've come through, God understands us. And God loves us. And God has a plan and purpose for us. And even though you may feel like your life is a big food trough, or that your life is a mess, that your life is filled with animal feces and mistakes and issues and addictions and failures and flaws and hurts and all these things. Jesus is not shocked or disgusted or surprised by our sin. His coming in a manger tells us that he isn't savior of the best in the world or the most beautiful or most wealthy or most successful, but he is the savior of the whole world. In his coming, what he says to us is this, none of us are too sinful, are too broken, are too far beyond his arm of redemption. He came as the lowest of lows, an extraordinary God born in the most sub-ordinary way so that we as ordinary people could experience extraordinary purpose. You see, there was no room in the inn because there was no recognition of the one who was asking. And even though we've been in our own hotels or have our own B&Bs, or, or be people make money off hostility, although some of us might be. We are all an innkeeper in our own hearts. We are all an innkeeper in our own hearts. And I believe at Christmas, God allows this gospel message to go out in a way that it comes to our hearts, that knocks. And it says, if you'll make room for me, I would like to come in. And we have a choice. Do we make room for Jesus? Or do we say, sorry, the inn is full. There's other distractions and priorities and things going on. I just have no room for you. Jesus would say, even the garden shed will do. Whatever it takes to be part of your life, would you welcome me in? And every time we hear this message, we have a choice to open the door of our hearts and to take a chance. Or like the innkeeper say, I'm sorry. I'm just too busy. 
See, the point is, there is always room when we recognize what's most important. Or more importantly, there's always room when we recognize who's most important. That's why we're traveling. That's why we're writing cards. That's why we're buying gifts. That's why we're trying to express to everyone that is near and dear our love by why? Because we want them to know they're important. When someone's important, we recognize their value, we make room. Here's my question for you this Christmas. Will you recognize Jesus Christ? As he comes knocking on your heart, will you open up and make room in your heart for the Son of God and Savior of the world? He did for you. By coming in a manger, he took the first step and made room for us. But God is not rude or forceful. As someone, someone once said, God is a gentleman. He will only enter in where there is an invitation. So as we begin to close then, how do we make room for Jesus? Three things. Three, way, three things that we can do this Christmas Eve to make room for Jesus. Number one, fech arisa, which literally means in Irish, see Jesus. And what I mean by see Jesus is I mean see him for who he really is. See him for who God's word shows he is. He's not some cute, personal baby in a nativity scene. He isn't just some great philanthropist, humanitarian, theologian, scholar, rabbi, teacher. He's not, just, he's not a founder of our religion. He is the son of God and savior of the world. And for us to value, we must recognize who he really is. And unfortunately, religion has done us a disservice. Why? Because religion has distorted the picture of who Jesus is. If you want to know who Jesus is, open your Bible. You don't need a pastor or a priest or some scholar. You can open God's word and God will speak to you. See Jesus for who he is. Number two, Eisht Isa, which means hear Jesus. I believe that in this room right now, the presence of God is with us. And for every heart that is open to hearing from him, God speaks. And again, for me, I think it's ironic because if you knew me before I became a Jesus, I was the opposite of God follower, God believer. I was the opposite. And I would laugh at people who said, said I would laugh at people who say the kind of things I say to you right now. Be careful when you laugh at God. He might call you be a pastor and spend the rest of your life laughing at you. Because he's God. But I cannot deny the fact that when I prayed a half-hearted prayer to a God I didn't even believe existed, I heard him. And it wasn't like an audible voice. It's like in my, if my heart had ears, I heard him. What do you do when you begin to recognize Jesus for who he is and you begin to hear him, you get to feel his presence? Well, thirdly, we have a choice. We can do it on Doris, close the door, or we can say, you're welcome in. I just welcome, hey, thanks for everything you did. Hey, happy Christmas. Cute little baby in the manger. No, I welcome you in to my life, to my world, to my heart. The heart is always searching. It's a curious thing. The heart is never satisfied. It's always seeking. But I want to tell you this Christmas, Jesus, he is the ultimate finding to all of our seeking. Every question the heart asks, Jesus is the answer. 
And to know the peace of Christ, not like a peace as an absence from conflict, but a peace as a total centeredness in God's plan and purpose, is to know that he is the answer to all of our asking. We're told in the word that after Jesus was born, a period of time went by and these wise men, or as we're told, probably scientists, actually the best word, these scientists, astronomers and such, were searching the skies for answers and they saw a strange star appear and realized that this star wasn't, wasn't a destination, it was a sign, it was a spotlight that was, that was diverting its glory and attention and gaze to someone more important, Jesus. And these wise men were told, set off at the behest and the leading of the star to find Jesus. And when they found him, they recognized, they worshipped him and gave him gifts that befit a king. And I always read a story, I think, man, isn't it so interesting that wise men once sought him. I want to say to you, the wise still do. So will you with me open your hearts this Christmas and say, Falchus Jach, you're welcome in.